Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Arielle Frame, with your co-host, Chantelle Lemire. Hi. Uh, and behind the soundboard, we have Susan Anthony. Um, our guest tonight is Mateus Sanita Lima. Hello, everyone. Um, and we're very glad to have him. So why don't we start off uh, right away and get right into a little bit about your work. Excellent. So... Well, I work with David Smith. I am a second year master's student in biology. And in our lab, we study organelle genome evolution. So we study how mitochondria and chloroplasts evolved over time in terms of their genes in a very, in, in a very succinct form. Okay. That, I'm in music, and there were a lot of words in that sentence that I don't know. The first one being that's a good question people talk about genes all the time but a lot of people just think they're pants so what are they (laughs) (laughs) good analogy well so genes are segments of dna right our uh, heritable material that they're going to encode for proteins which are molecules that exhibit functions within the cell okay so they are the fundamental unit if you wish of life Okay, and then the other two words were mitochondria and chloroplast. chloroplast. Yes. What are those, and what's the difference between them? Absolutely. So, they are both organelles. So wait, what's an organelle? Organelle, right? <laughs> I'm loving this. So we're gonna have to do that a lot. As we oh, oh don't worry. This is gonna be fun. So, organelles are, if you wish, vesicles or parts of the cell that they have their own endomembrane system. So it's um. Go, go okay, ahead, go so ahead. sorry. So they're not part of the nucleus. No, they aren't. Okay. They oh, aren't. okay, okay. They are separated right. from no, the no, nucleus. From they're the nucleus. not part of the nucleus. Yeah, that's, they're not. Part okay. Of it. Yes. Okay. And uh, so they are in the periphery of the cell. Okay. Functioning almost like independently, if you wish. That's why they're called organelles and not endosymbionts, for example, right? Okay. Because an endosymbiont would be an organism that lives within the cell and relies on the cell for its survival and also produces uh, molecules for the host. And I just wanted to establish this connection with endosymbionts because organelles actually came from them. So over 2.5 billion years ago, organelles were actual endosymbionts that over time lost their independency and and became then real organelles. Wow. So (laughs) parts of the cell. uh, By endosymbiont, you mean uh, something that uh, has a relationship with something else that um, they both benefit from? That's the kind of idea, right? So uh, uh, the chloroplast and the mitochondria, from my understanding, uh, were derived uh, ancestrally from an organism that was separate from our cells. and they were joined to us. Yes, they came from bacteria. So 2.5 billion years ago, instead of having a cell like ours with organelles, we had one cell without organelles that once engulfed bacteria, which are smaller cells. And instead of digesting those bacteria, the cell cell maintained it as an endosymbiont. So the bacteria would produce uh, interesting byproducts to the cell. Okay. And then they established this, this very closely, close relationship. Okay. Okay. So I'm with you again. So now say again what you study. Oh, great. Now that I understand yeah, some yeah, of yeah. the words. Okay. 
So, well, and I think I didn't tell you what mitochondria chloroplasts do and oh. how they differ yeah, okay. between them. Yeah. Okay. So mitochondria, I guess people have in their minds that mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Okay. So mitochondria produces the energy for the cell. Okay. And chloroplast somehow does the same, but just for photosynthetic organisms. Okay. Right? So plants. we don't, yeah, exactly. Okay. Plants or algae. So, Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they came from different endosymbionts. So they are independent from each other. Uh, and yeah, so they will basically produce energy to the cell. Of course, they are also related to other fundamental processes like mitosis and uh, cell differentiation, aging, for example. But okay. those aren't under the scope of my research. So talking a little bit about my research, because those organelles came from other they came from endosymbionts. Those endosymbionts also had their own genetic material, right? Mm -hmm. And the organelles did not lose totally their material. Okay. So they kept this material, and right now in our cells, we have DNA in the nucleus mm -hmm. and also DNA in those organelles. Okay. So there is a very convoluted communication among those different genetic compartments, and how this communication happens governs how those genomes are going to evolve. So. In my lab, we study how these genomes evolve over time, like how they mm -hmm. differ among different species. Hey, can I can I ask, um, is there ever kind of like a, a rebellion? Were there ever like, nah, we don't want to be, we're not, we're not going to be used anymore by these damn eukaryotes. We want to be our <laughs> own cell. Again, we want to be glorious again. Um, and somehow like, gain more genes so i mean the idea i think is that like they a lot of those genes they don't need anymore because yes. they're not sustaining their own life mm -hmm. anymore. they're just a unit of a bigger cell mm -hmm. so they've lost a lot of their own genes mm -hmm. if, I, if i remember correctly mm -hmm. um do they ever gain some oh yes they do which Ooh. is interesting and this is also part of why we investigate the evolution of those genomes because as i said the the route from endosymbiont to an organelle is basically losing the genetic material. That's how an endosymbiont becomes completely dependent upon the cell. But interestingly, interestingly, many organelles, they lost their, geno their genes, part of it, but then they acquired it from the nucleus or even from other species through uh, horizontal gene transfer, for example. And uh, it's also... It, it actually is quite common within organelles to move around genes because mitochondria and chloroplasts, they fuse, right? So they, they might fuse, I mean, they, f they will fuse within the cell right. and uh, in, in that process, they can absorb DNA, extra DNA. D did, you, did you just say mitochondria and chloroplasts Confuse? Not themselves. I mean, mitochondria fuse with mitochondria, chloroplast with chloroplast. Oh, okay. Not between like, them. No, 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 no. This no, is no. new to me. No, no, no. I mean, maybe they don't. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's old hat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they do acquire DNA, and uh, but they don't ever get independent. We haven't seen an organelle that went back, you know, like backwards and said, "I'm gonna go back to be a bacteria, to be bacteria." Sorry. So, but they do acquire, and that that's that's one of the reasons for us to have uh, so much diversity in genome size, right? Mm. That's also one thing that we are interested in in it because. You have, for example, mitochondrial genomes in Apicomplexa, which is a group of organisms that are uh, parasites. For okay. example, one of one of the most famous uh, species of this group is the uh, causative agent for malaria. Okay. So, oh, yeah. Plasmodium falciparum, which which causes malaria, has one of the smallest mitochondrial genomes. Like it's very very tiny, which is around 
6,000 base pairs long. Just for a reference, our mitochondrial genome is roughly 15,000 base pairs long. Okay. So it's quite small. And then you have like gigantic mitochondrial genomes like in, in land plants, which are over like 100,000 uh, base pairs. Oh, wow. So we have like folds of, folds of uh, difference, right? And why is that? So they, they pick up DNA from outside and other processes as well. And so the particular uh, thing that you look at is called a plastid bearing protist? Yes. <laughs> What's a protist? What makes it plastid ba bearing? Plastid bearing? Yeah. And I think that's it for now. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> so protists are unicellular unicellular and um, if you wish, I don't want to say microscopic, but most of the time they are microscopic, eukaryotes. Okay. So, well, to begin with, eukaryotes are everything except bacteria. Let's, let's put like that. Okay. And uh, so protists are within the eukaryotes, the microscopic, one, uh, microscopic ones. So are my cells eukaryotes? Yes. Okay, okay. Our cells are eukaryotic cells. We are eukaryotes. And a plant's cell would be so that So is a plant, mm -hmm. yeah. But not a bacteria. Not a bacteria. Okay. What, what about archaea? What's archaea? Okay. <laughs> okay, no. Well, I guess <laughs> for, I mean, I would say it's a special type of bacteria, if you wish. Okay. I hope, I hope. It just gets lumped Systemats in. aren't listening to what I'm saying right now, but it's, a, it's yeah, it's a close related to bacteria okay. type of thing. Okay, because you're like, oh, everything that's not eukaryote is bacteria. I'm like, hmm. But, okay, got it. For all, for intent, for this purpose, we're looking at eukarya. That's yes. the most important thing to you. Yes, and particularly for my project, because we had to narrow down, right? Because eukaryotes, they encompass they such a huge group of organisms. Mm. So we decided to work with, again, protists, Mm. and only plastid bearing. So why do I say plastid bearing? Because mm. they will have a plastid that might uh, be photosynthetic. In okay. that case, we call a chloroplastid. And okay. if it's not a photosynthetic, it's just a plastid, okay. right? So, so my organisms, they might be photosynthetic or not. So they might perform photosynthesis or not. Uh, so a, pl a plastid is, is uh, also uh, all of all plastids um, derive like in the same way as a chloroplast, like by the endosymbi yes. endosymbiosis, and just some were endosymbiosis of a of a, a photosynthetic organism, and another one was uh, endosymbiosis of a a non photosynthetic a organism. non photosynthetic. Is that what the idea? <laughs> kind of. So mitochondria. So the origin of mitochondria and chloroplast were was independent and unique it happened only once right mm -hmm. i mean at least it happened once like the, mm -hmm. the one that has been inherited let's say it might have happened many times but we didn't have they didn't survive they didn't survive thank okay. you we, we, so, we put a stop to that <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so i mean in other terms it's a monophyletic group if we wish in terms of uh, uh, the plastids that aren't photosynthetic they derived from the chloroplast that's my point. So you oh. have initially a chloroplast, a, a photosynthetic endosymbiont that give rise to a chloroplast. But then over time, some lineages lost their photosynthetic capabilities. For example, parasitic, parasitic plants or even other parasitic uh, protists that were photosynthetic. What's an example of a parasitic plant? Mm, I don't have the name of this, even the common name of species, but certain plants, for example, that are 
adapted to uh, sh uh, like shadow areas, right? Oh. So they won't have access to light. They don't photosynthesize. Okay. But instead, Indian pipe, for example. Which sorry? Indian Indian pipe. In Indian pipe. Yeah. Okay. Indian pipe. Hmm. So those plants, for example, they will grow in the shadows and they will acquire their energy from other plants. So they have, for example, special types of roots that allow them to absorb the uh, sap from other plants or they'll develop other endosymbiotic relationships with fungi that give them energy, but they won't perform photosynthesis. Okay. Yet, they still have the, the former photosynthetic organelle, which is now called plastid. Okay. Okay. I think I follow that. Good. Good. Yeah. So they were. So they were. Uh, they were born in the shadows, and they live in the shadows. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. Oh, okay. I'm just. L our producer is just showing me a, a picture of um, a parasitic. A, a parasitic plant, and it's quite beautiful. <laughs> Thanks, producer. <laughs> Cool. Okay. So, um, can you tell us uh, a little bit how you go about quantifying or <clears throat> looking at the qualities of the different genomes, organelle sure. gen genomes? How do you do that? So, I study the evolution of those genomes by understanding how those genomes are transcribed, right? So, <laughs> so how much RNA those genomes are producing. And basically, my everyday life is <laughs> just mapping the RNA, the, the transcripts they produce on top of their genome. And it's a numeric, it's a quantitative measurement, if you wish. So I have histograms that show like per nucleotide, like how, how transcribed, how much transcribed is each nucleotide, sorry, nucleotide. And, uh, and as I showed you earlier on today, we have those histograms. And so I can see what areas of the genome are more transcribed and what areas are less transcribed. Okay, so s the mapping that you do, mm -hmm. that's y y scientists, that's what they, you guys called sequencing? Is that? Well, there is sequencing involved, but it's particularly I did not perform sequencing. Okay. Because one nice thing, if you wish, about my project is I did not generate any of my data. So all my data were already publicly available. Okay. On, on databases that scientists use like frequently mm. so people are going to sequence those genomes and use for different purposes and they're going to deposit and make it public so i can download those genomes and also the transcriptomes mm. and map them against each other and then here comes my analysis so i'm doing what we call mapping analysis okay but i did not sequence anything that was already available for me so the data that you're working with what was um what what was it used for mm -hmm. before so organelle genomes are usually sequenced just to study them like, to, as an exploratory thing. Like we want to understand like, how, like what is the mitochondrial, the human mitochondrial DNA? What is, okay. How is the, mit the mitochondrial DNA of other species, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and once you have that, you can perform studies like, uh, for example, comparative genomics, and you see like how different genes have been either lost or gained in different species. So this is one part of my data. The other part is the transcription part, which the cool thing about it is all the data that I used was oh, sorry, were generated 
not to study organelles, but to study the nucleus. Okay. So, and that's, a, that's actually something that my supervisor is like a strong advocate for because he says, you know, we are generating so much data to study the nucleus. And almost accidentally, right, you have, because the data, co the data come from the whole cell. You extract all the RNA from the cell and you don't separate the RNA uh, from the organelles fr in from the nucleus. They are all together. Okay. But scientists commonly are used just the RNA from the nucleus and they discard, they even discard the RNA from the organelle. And we are using this one that's not being used. So my supervisor likes to call it as untapped data source, mm -hmm. if you wish. Um, uh, how, how might you uh, take into account the fact that people might have made mistakes? So you go and get the data from there, but I mean, maybe, uh, I don't, sometimes <laughs> it's hard to trust. I Actually, I was, I was trained in a lab in my undergrad where like the mantra was don't trust anyone. Don't trust. <laughs> uh, Even yourself? Interesting. Uh, <laughs> anyone other than yourself? I guess, I don't know. Uh. Don't trust anyone because, and the idea is not like, you always be paranoid, but mm. it's just to be rigorous and yeah, yeah. make sure you're you're careful with everything you do. So I'm not saying you're not careful, but um, you know you're get using data that's already produced by someone else. Yeah. How might you take into account the fact that they might have made mistakes or used a less or a better or worse way of of sequencing in the first place? No, no, I agree with you. No, and that's that's an important important uh, concern. So. The fact that I did not generate my data impacted my project in different ways, right? The first limitation is when I do a, uh, a certain mapping analysis and then I figure, for example, that 90% of the genome is sequenced. So I can assure you that 90% is being sequenced, but I can't talk anything about the 10% left mm. because for any reason that I don't know, maybe that 10% that isn't being sequenced right now was just not captured in the sequencing uh, reaction, for example, in the sequence in the experiment, right? Because as I said before, these, trans these transcriptomes are coming from s investigations about the, n the nuclear transcription. Mm. And um, so these are studies that investigate, for example, how plant cells uh, perform under heat stress, for example, or under light stress. Obviously, those conditions are going to interfere in the organelle transcription somehow, right? So the first limitation is to what extent I can I can speculate, if you wish, right? I can't account for, if you wish, false positives. I would say so. There is a, there is a limitation in that in terms of quality quality control. I wouldn't be well to begin with. I wouldn't be so concerned because you assume that what's in the database is kind of good to use because all those all those data were already were already used for publications for the publications so this is something that people are using already and second if the data is really bad the sequencing per se is really bad when i do my mapping it's just like it's a very bad mapping i see very few regions being covered and like a lot of um variation right as an snps if you wish so there is no matching between the genome and the transcriptome that should have that should exist so i just discard that data but i agree if you not generating my data brings that problem of what about the quality control right okay um that's 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 really awesome uh interesting work that you're doing um I mean, you're i know that you are coming actually pretty close to the end of mm -hmm. your degree which is um quite exciting uh, and I think a, a lot of people 
want to have some solid results at the end, and I mm-hmm. think maybe you have some findings. Mm-hmm. What uh, What do you think? I mean, I don't. Know, maybe this is you don't want to don't want to say yet because you're going to be publishing. Oh no, but it's not no secret. Don't worry. <laughs> so well, at the end of my project, so what we did was we studied over 120 species, so 120 placid bearing protists, and we we were able to include from land plants to marine algae to parasitic plants. So we encompassed a, a good diversity, if you wish. And we, what, we, what we found out, the most interesting thing I would say was it really doesn't matter the size of the organelle genome. Remember when I said we have like very small mitochondrial genomes and very big mitochondrial genomes? Mm-hmm. The same thing applies for chloroplast. And it, it did not matter the size of the genome. Genomes are always, be, are always being fully transcribed. Because we initially thought that compact genomes, smaller genomes, would be fully transcribed, and then bigger and bloated genomes would not be so transcribed because that would be more costly, right? You would just transcribe specific genes that are fundamental for the, for the function of the organelle. Mm. Because let's remember that between genes, you have regions that are called intergenic regions that allegedly don't produce anything. Right? They are sitting there. We don't know exactly why. And the cool thing about our results is both intergenic regions and genes are being consistently transcribed and in the same intensity. Right? So does that make you come to think that those regions, we don't know what they do, but they might, they, exactly. maybe they do something, yeah, right? That, like, exactly. Yeah. That's the great thing. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Of course, I'm not the first person saying that this is not so breakthrough. But the good thing about it is like we were able to show that in a, in a big array, in a, in a big group. Because so far, we have been seeing people already saying like, you know, organelle genomes, they go for transcription. But nobody yet has said, you know what? All organelle genomes go for transcription, or at least it seems as though it's a, it's the norm, right? Because so far people have studied, you know, a, a specific group, let's say a specific group of land plants, or a specific group of parasitic plants, and we encompassed all those different groups. And yes, this seems to be the norm. Okay. And, and do you it, think that you could extend outward to other, even to other groups? Yeah, even to other groups, or yeah, that's our pitch. I we believe that. So one thing that we want to encourage is is the continuing sequencing uh, campaign, if you wish. So sequencing more species that we haven't studied yet, and uh, and I believe that again that would be the norm. Like you'd always have organelle genomes being fully transcribed, mm. because the idea behind it is, at least this is how we see it. So as I said, organelles they they are the powerhouse of the cell. They produce energy for the cell. And they're going to produce energy for the cell according to their environment, right? So sometimes you need less energy, sometimes you need more. Depending on the stress that you are in, you're going to produce in different levels. So by always producing RNA, the organelles are readily—they are ready to respond to any environmental kill, right? At the protein level. Mm-hmm. So imagine like you have like a buffer or an army of RNA that is ready to be transcribed, ready to produce proteins according to the environmental cues. Okay. Because in one cell, we have many organelles, and those organelles, they can't respond independently to the environmental cues, right? Mm-hmm. Remember, the nucleus talks to the cells, one signal hits all, right? So once different environmental cues reach the cell, the cells are ready to produce whatever they need. Okay. 
and that's why I think regardless of the species that you're working with, organelles will always be will always go for transcription. Okay. Nice. So you got a stockpile of uh, of RNA and ready to go at any point in time, and you've determined that uh, this is common practice for all eukaryotes. No, no, all yeah, all eukaryotes. eukaryotes yes. All eukaryotes, pretty much. So. Um, we don't have too much time left, but uh, it'd be nice to maybe talk a little bit about life as a student at Western uh, and speak to, like, because, you know, being, I guess, I guess a kind of senior student, um, you're almost done. So you can tell us a bit, like, uh, about your experience here at Western. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're also uh, an international student. Mm-hmm. So you can tell us how, how it feels to be an international student and, like, coming to mm-hmm. coming to Western like that. Wear different hats, right? Yeah. Well, as I want to say as a senior grad student, if you wish, one thing for sure I don't regret at all by going to, to grad school. I think it was it wasn't has been such a a intense and very enriching experience. You know, I know it sounds like cliche, but every day you learn a different thing mm-hmm. and you and you talk to different from people from different fields like we're doing right now and this is so enriching so rewarding so it's a very like it's always like thought-provoking and always learning something new so i like that um what else let me see in terms of international students again i i have always adopted i have always believed that you should expose yourself to different things that's how you learn and that's why i have always been abroad even doing as an undergrad i went abroad twice and uh and coming here was very uh was very rewarding as well like we have a very nice platform like it is a a intercultural environment if you wish so i think it's an experience like if if anybody would have that opportunity to take on it's very very interesting and uh and i heard also through the grapevine that you have a uh, an exceptional opportunity coming up next mm, so why don't you tell us about because i know that you're i have a feeling you're pretty excited about it mm, so why don't true. you tell us uh how you went about finding that opportunity because there are a lot of other grad students that are not new grad students but have now gone through their studies and are wondering what do i do next what's the next you oh have my gosh i'm so excited to hear what you're doing right. next. so i'm going <laughs> to germany Ooh. for my phd again i like being abroad and like, okay let's 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 travel a little bit more and uh i am going to work in the same field still so organ evolution in with a slightly different focus i'm going to be working on the plastid only i won't be looking at mitochondria and uh I, I found this lab. This lab happened to be one lab that I have always cited, you know, that prof that you like so much, like, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you think, this guy is so smart, I just mm. wish I could speak to him. And I always liked them. And then one day I mailed them with my CV and a nice email, I guess, mm. and then we started a conversation and now I'm going there. That's phenomenal. It just goes to show when you put yourself out there, you know, you never know what can happen. Exactly. And yeah. People just are take amazing the risk. when they love stuff. So, uh, well, that was uh, great to hear. Uh, and I guess we learned you got to put yourself out there, enjoy what you do, um, and go and explore. Um, if people want to, he- if people want to read more about your work, uh, where can they go? What do you have a website for David Smith? So yeah, David has a, a website. Is arrogantgenome.com okay. altogether? Ar- arrogantgenome. Yeah, arrogantgenome.com. Okay. 
Okay. And you can find everything there. Okay, great. Okay, so that's uh, that's the end of our show. Uh, thanks for listening to Gradcast, Gradcast uh, on CHRW, if you listen to it uh, on the radio. Uh, you can listen to us at 6 p.m. every Tuesday on CHRW, uh, or you can go to our website at gradcast.ca. Uh, if you're a grad student at Western here uh, and you want to come on the show, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com, and I would highly recommend that you do so. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.